This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Sherry. Uh, Today's guest... um, does not really need much of an introduction for this audience. Bob Costas is one of the iconic voices in the history of sports broadcasting. He is currently a Major League Baseball Network play-by-play announcer, as well as a host uh, of specials for them. Bob Costas, you know from his work for multiple decades, Emmy Award-winning work on NBC. Uh, He was the host of the Olympics. I think 11 Olympics, if I'm correct about that, was the host of Football Night in America and hosted Kentucky Derbies and U.S. Opens and Ryder Cup coverage and the NBA during the Jordan era. Again, one of the most uh, well-known broadcasters of his generation or any generation. And so he is the guest. He is here um, not only to talk about, and we had a pretty good conversation about um, just the, some things in his career and and what he thinks about a lot of stuff, but he was instrumental in launching and developing the Concussion Legacy Foundation's media project, which is the first and only concussion reporting training designed specifically for sports media professionals. So Bob will talk about his connection with uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation, and then we will get into um, some other topics about uh, broadcasters discussing discussing concussions and, and head trauma uh, on air. Uh, whether one can still editorialize in a broadcast if you're a rights holder partner, his prominence in the last dance, talked a little bit about the Tokyo Olympics, and then obviously doing baseball, potentially doing baseball with no crowd. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, Bob Costas is always an interesting guest, and he is the only guest on this podcast. Coming up, Bob Costas on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Bob Costas does not really need much of an introduction for the listeners here. He's one of the most iconic voices in the history of sports broadcasting. I mentioned some of um, some of his long resume at the top of this podcast. Uh, he is uh, currently calling games for the MLB Network, hosts specials for that network as well. He is here ostensibly on behalf of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. We'll get into some other stuff with Bob as well, but uh, he has been instrumental in launching and developing um, what is a sort of outreach. I guess I would call it outreach for media, which is to um, it's the first and only concussion reporting training designed specifically for sports media professionals. In layman's terms, it's to help media people learn how to be more accurate about uh, concussion reporting. And I'm pleased to be joined by Bob Costas. Bob, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Happy to renew acquaintances. Bob, uh, let's start off here before we get into uh, before we get into anything else, and that's just um, what has your experience been like with COVID-19, and how is your health at the moment? How's your family's health? Well, I'll quote a friend of mine who said to me at the very outset of this, you know, we're fortunate 
we just have to adjust. Other people have to figure out how to survive. So luckily, me and my family, we're in the former category. We're all safe. We're all healthy. And I've tried to do what many, many people have done, uh, contribute what I can to any sort of uh, COVID-19 relief-related causes, um, auction things. Uh, You can do a whole lot these days. I've discovered I'm a notorious technophobe, but I know how to Zoom. I know how to FaceTime. So I've been able to go on the air in various places that way or to make uh, announcements that are used as part of auctions where people in sports have auctioned off experiences to help raise money. And uh, some of these uh, have really been extraordinarily successful. The all-in challenge that Lon Rosen, who's an executive with the Dodgers, helped to launch is into the tens of millions of dollars and probably heading over $100 million before all is said and done. So I've been happy to be involved in, in some of those things, and I don't think that's much different than uh, my colleagues around the sports world. We all try to do what we can with our physical limitations. You can't go much of anywhere, but luckily the technology now makes it possible to still weigh in. I'm glad to hear your, your, uh, the health of you and your family is, is good. Let's, uh, let me just sort of ask you a, like a, a sort of a macro question. Uh, how would you define your relationship with the Concussion Legacy Foundation? Well, I was always interested in the issue. Um, the New York Times, uh, going back a decade or so, did a whole series of stories, articles, ongoing investigative pieces about uh, the concussion crisis in football specifically, but it wasn't limited to football. I became interested in the subject. Um, I went up to Boston and met with Dr. Ann McKee and Dr. Robert Cantu and Chris Nowinski, former college football player and former professional wrestler who himself has gone on to earn a PhD. Chris Nowinski started the Concussion Legacy Foundation and now in cooperation with Dr. Robert Cantu, they put together an educational program, which is just one of the things that the Concussion Legacy Foundation does. So I've learned more about the issue through my association with them. And I can't take any credit for putting this curriculum together, but I can speak to people like you and help to make people within the broadcasting uh, and journalism community from, uh, aware of it so they can uh, tap into it if they wish to. But one of the things about uh, what uh, CLF is doing is it's pretty user-friendly, right, for uh, a media person or even someone who just wants to learn more about the uh, accurate terminology to, lo- to use when you're sort of publicly disseminating this. It's a, it's, a fairly, um, it's a fairly user-friendly course, correct, to sort of go through and get certified? Yeah, and uh, hundreds of broadcasters specifically have gotten certified, including some bold-faced names like Andrea Kramer and Sean McDonough and Bob Lee, uh, Leslie Visser. Um, we've come a long way from the days not all that long ago when ESPN actually ran a regular weekly feature called He Got Jacked Up. And when former players and professional broadcasters chortled like frat boys over the kinds of hits that we now know um, lead to terrible consequences. Uh, The terminology used, the awareness throughout the media is much better than it once was. Uh, But if you want to make sure that you've got all the I's dotted and T's crossed, To get the certification, you can do it online, as you were indicating, Richard, by going to concussionfoundation.org slash certify. Concussionfoundation.org slash 
certify. And also, and this is really impressive, only in a space of a few years, uh, the workshops which they teach have become part of the curriculum at prestigious universities that have very strong reputations in journalism. My alma mater, Syracuse, Northwestern, University of Missouri, Arizona State, NYU, Boston College, the list goes on. And so um, when the world returns to normal and people are back on campus, or uh, if they're doing it remotely, as has become more and more the case, if you're interested in one of those workshops, if you're an educator is interested in one of the workshops, then it's concussionfoundation.org slash workshop concussionfoundation.org slash workshop. Bob, do you think this should be uh, a requirement at networks that air any sport that um, potential, and I guess maybe it's every sport, but the sports where concussions are really, um, you know, sort of a regular part of those sports? Yeah, I, I think it's about as important as knowing the rules of the sport and knowing the whys and wherefores of anything you might have to cover and comment on uh, in a responsible and knowledgeable way. Uh, It's not something you need to, within the context of a game broadcast, harp upon or deliver lectures or opinion pieces about. But you ought to, by now, eliminate the notion, oh, he really got his bell rung, or that was just a stinger. Uh, that's, That's out of bounds now. There are better, more informed ways to refer to these circumstances, and you need to be familiar, too, with whatever the league or whatever the college conference or that university's policy is for dealing with, uh, with injuries that involve head trauma. And I, I find, I, I don't have a comprehensive view of this, you can't watch or listen to every broadcast, but in watching NFL games, I find that the broadcasters are, are generally pretty much up to speed when it comes to what the concussion protocols are around the NFL. And naturally, because of the NFL's wide visibility and popularity, and because among the team sports, it is the, uh, the sport where the risk of head trauma and, and its consequences is greatest, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in other sports. For example, baseball in recent years has put in a special concussion injury list so that if if someone goes through a concussion protocol and it appears that he should not go back into action, they can go on the concussion injured list for as little as seven days, but longer than that. And when I say as little as seven days, that may sound like they're soft-pedaling it, but the idea is to discourage people from hiding an injury. Catcher gets a number of foul tips back into his mask. He's having some symptoms. Maybe he doesn't want to lose his spot in the lineup. Well, we know that that's something that has long-range negative consequences. So baseball has its own concussion protocol. If it turns out that these symptoms are mild, if it turns out that under doctor's supervision, the player can return, then he's on a shorter absence than being placed on the 10-day or 15-day injured list, which covers all other types of injuries. The idea is to make sure that the players and the medical staffs are as well-informed and aware as possible, and that the normal competitive instincts, which so often have led athletes with a warrior mentality uh, 
to minimize what they're experiencing. It's one thing to minimize an ankle sprain. It's another thing to minimize head trauma. And I think we're moving in the right direction. Are we all the way there yet? Probably not. But we're a whole lot better off than we were just a few years ago. Bob, you, uh, there's very few people, I think, who could provide insight to answering this kind of question. Are there limits to how far a rights holder broadcaster can go when it comes to discussing head trauma to his or her audience if, um, if they're a pregame show host or a game announcer for the National Football League? Well, I think the glib answer here is not quite as far as Bob Costas went. But, <laughs> but I, was, I was at a point where the issue and acknowledging it was more important to me, uh, perhaps, than what the consequences might have been career-wise. Uh, but maybe I was in a different category. Uh, I, I think that if you're talking about a game broadcast, all you need to do is be well-informed and sensitive to the issue. You don't need to editorialize within a game. Um, and if the networks, as appears to be the case, don't want any of that in the pregame and halftime, uh, unless it's a direct factual report that somebody has quit because of repeated concussions, that's just a factual news report, they clearly don't want too much editorializing around it because it reminds people of the darker side of the most popular and profitable property that the networks have. Uh, but there are other places. There are places apart from the games. Uh, in print, um, programs like HBO's Real Sports, ESPN, uh, does a wide variety of things. But it includes a substantial amount of journalism, which they do very well when they turn their attentions to it. So I, I think that there, there are lots of places apart from the games themselves where this, where this uh, issue can get the attention it deserves. And within the games... The broadcasters and producers just have to be aware of what the science is, what the best present understanding is, what the league's concussion protocols are, so that they cover these situations when they happen right in front of them. They cover them accurately and intelligently. Bob, you, uh, you mentioned the word editorializing. Uh, leads to a question I wanted to ask you. You, um, you did a lot of essays at halftime for... Uh, Sunday Night Football to be part of that broadcast. There were obviously a couple of them that uh, went to a place where you received a ton of criticism, uh, accusations of over-politicizing an issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My thought is that um, heading forward in both the short term and perhaps long term, no one is going to be in that kind of position again on a National Football League broadcast where they could offer those kind of essays as the sort of the last person who did this. I wanted to get your perspective on that, that kind of take. Well, it's probably true. First of all, the person would have to have the ability and the inclination to do it and be at a certain stage of their career. You know, I really think that NBC didn't quite know what to do with me toward the end. Uh, they hadn't had baseball uh, since 2000. They hadn't had the NBA since 2002. The Olympics came up only once every couple of years. And after I'd done a dozen of them, I made it clear a few years before I did my final Olympics that that would be the end, that Rio in 2016 would be the end for me. Um, but I guess they sort of wanted to keep my name on the letterhead. And so they were looking for ways to keep me involved. So they carved out this halftime essay thing. And despite what impressions may have been left, there were more than 100 of them, maybe closer to 150 of them over the years. 
and only two could be said to have even the slightest political aspect to them. One was an essay about the gun culture in sports, not the Second Amendment, not gun control, no matter how it may have been misrepresented elsewhere. Uh, If I could have gone back and had a do-over, I might have phrased it differently, but that's what that was about. And then there was one a year later about the Redskins team name, and again, that didn't come out of nowhere. The issue had surfaced on a national level earlier that very week, and so NBC asked me to make that the subject of my halftime essay because Washington was playing Dallas on our air on Sunday Night Football, so what better place? And I delivered what I thought was a very even-handed essay that said that while no offense was intended, and we don't want to get into an area of extreme political correctness here because sometimes that's inane, but get yourself a dictionary. Every dictionary, and I consulted five, defines Redskins as pejorative, insulting, derogatory. There's no such definition attached to other names people might associate with Native Americans. Braves, chiefs, warriors. Perhaps there could be objections to the rituals or the symbols, depending upon uh, each individual case. But by definition, chiefs, braves, warriors, not an insult. By definition, not by intent in the 21st century, but by definition, redskins is an insult. It's a slur. It's pejorative. That was the distinction I tried to make. And I said, look, while no offense is intended by Washington's ownership, by its players, by its fans. Take a step back and consider what the equivalent of Redskins would be if applied to African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, any other ethnic group. When considered that way, it's possible to see how some offense could be taken. Now, you could agree with me, you could disagree with me, but the idea that I had taken an extreme left-wing position is just nuts. But beyond that, the idea that I frequently brought politics into these essays is wildly incorrect. I realize there are some quarters in society now where objective truth no longer matters. Something can be untrue or completely true just depending upon what you want to be true. You can ignore a mountain of evidence if you don't want it to be true, and you can assert something with almost no evidence if you'd like it to be true. But some people still place a value on objective truth. This is a mathematical fact. There were close to 150 of these halftime essays. Two, and I just gave them to you, were political in nature. So did I abuse that forum and abuse that platform? Maybe somebody could argue that I did it once, but did I do it on a regular basis? No. And in the larger picture, here's a misimpression that I was always, as I said, this misimpression, always bringing politics into these broadcasts. For those who value objective truth, I'll save you the trouble. You're not going to go back and go over the tapes. 99% plus of what I have done has been about the game that I'm broadcasting, if it's baseball, or that I'm hosting, if it's some other sport. I just mentioned how only two out of well over 100 halftime essays in football had any kind of political aspect, and they were both attached to something specifically about the NFL. All the rest were football-oriented, they were tongue-in-cheek, or they were appreciations of someone who was retiring or who passed away, or they were about football issues, 99% of it. Some people may be confusing 
those occasions, not many of them, but there were occasions when I was asked to go on CNN or wherever and talk about Colin Kaepernick or some other issue like that. But that was entirely removed from game coverage. This idea, I just tuned in to watch the game. Well, what did you tune to CNN for? Were you expecting to see the Patriots playing the Bills on a Tuesday afternoon on CNN? And the other aspect would be the Olympics. It is impossible to cover an Olympics without acknowledging some of the political overtones. You can't do an Olympics from Sochi and not acknowledge that Vladimir Putin's dark hand is at work at these Olympic Games. You can't do an Olympics in Beijing in 2008, let alone what they'll have to cope with in 2022, and not acknowledge the political dynamics there. You don't do it while Simone Biles is performing her artistry, or Michael Phelps is about to jump into the pool, or Usain Bolt is getting into the blocks. I've never done that and would never imagine doing that. But there are always little moments that don't overlap any of the competition and keep anybody from that competition. There are always little moments where you can acknowledge the elephants in the room and acknowledge some of what is at play at every Olympics. And much of what I've done in that regard have been commentaries or observations that certainly could not be called left-wing. Is it left-wing to say that the IOC should have acknowledged the 40th anniversary of the Munich massacre? I did that during the opening ceremony in 2012 when the Israeli team came in. Is it left-wing to ask first Jacques Roga and then Thomas Bach, the heads of the IOC, what is it with the IOC and authoritarian nations? How is it that in a relatively short period of time, you will have gone to Beijing twice and Sochi in between? What's up with that? These, to me, seem like the appropriate journalistic questions. President Bush was at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Dick Ebersol arranged for him to come in. I asked George Bush the same sorts of questions you would have asked him if he was on Meet the Press. And it was very well received. Uh, the quality of that interview was very well received. But it also included, as I thought it should have, um, some warm moments with President Bush because he's a sportsman, and I gave him a chance to talk about what sports has meant in his life and what experience uh, he had had in Beijing. And come to think of it, I did the same thing with him in Salt Lake City in 2002. And remember, those Olympics happened only a month, only a few months, rather, after 9-11 and on American soil. So there was, uh, there was an aspect that went beyond sports to that conversation with President Bush. These, these are not, I have no particular left-wing agenda. That's insane. People who know me would be very surprised at that characterization. I'm kind of an a la carte guy. I have certain beliefs that people might label conservative, others they might label liberal, but I don't fall into any one column. And I think that everything that I have chosen to address has been relevant, and the vast majority of the time, you know, occasionally you'd like a mulligan, but the vast majority of the time, I've offered a reasonable, common-sense take on whatever was in front of me, and it was pertinent to what was going on in that game or around that sport or around that event. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bob, um, you had an amazing career with NBC Sports. Uh, and again, there'd be too many too many things that you did to go through it from the Olympics, Kentucky Derbies, etc. Um the ending maybe wasn't as clean as as any of us would have hoped for, but uh, the reality is it's, you know, when we leave a job, it's not always clean. How um, how would you view your last couple of years with NBC Sports? Or how maybe how would you view, with a little bit of hindsight now, your exit there? With some regret, because it was a wonderful run of nearly 40 years. I have great appreciation and respect for the people I worked for and with. Uh, they enhanced my career. They enhanced my life. I hope that there were times when I elevated the presentation on the air, but I know that there were times when they elevated my work. So overall, I have great appreciation for it. But in the last few years, they really didn't know what to do with me, and I knew that it was no longer a good fit, and that created a little bit of tension and friction. Um, And I wish that we had wound it up with something It didn't have to be a big deal. It didn't need a, a parade or a bunch of bells and whistles. But if I could have crafted a very small goodbye, if they could have found some place where we could have done it, um, we actually talked about something uh, that we would have, where we would have taken a look back at the last 40 years of NBC Sports, not specifically focusing on me, but I would have hosted it. And it would have been the kind of stuff that's catnip to a sports audience. All the great moments over the years and all the great voices, Dick Enberg and Al Michaels and Mike Emmerich and Don Crickey and Charlie Jones and on and on, Marv Albert, all those voices and all those great moments across a broad spectrum of sports, the Olympics, basketball, hockey, baseball, football, college football, pro football. I mean, it would have been a wonderful uh, just grab bag of stuff for for the viewers, and I would have hosted that. Um, as someone who was there in one way or another for that entire four-decade period, and then could have just used it at the end to say a very brief and appreciative thank you to my colleagues and goodbye to the audience and see you somewhere else down the road. If it had ended that way, um, as perhaps it should have, I would have felt a lot better about it. Um, I don't know that anyone is specifically at fault. Uh, We should have thought this thing through. And then eventually it got out there before we had been able to make the announcement ourselves and then just kind of kind of disappeared into the ether. So, uh, you know, that that's the, the one aspect of it that, that I wish uh, had gone a little bit differently. All right, we'll do a couple more subjects here, Bob, and then uh, and then I will let you go. And I appreciate your time. You um, you're fi- you you're prominently figured in the last dance uh, ESPN's. Uh, documentary on the 1997-98 Bulls and sort of writ large Michael Jordan and, and his career. Um, I imagine that you've probably been contacted by a lot of people who want to talk to you about that era just because we've seen you on a couple of these episodes. And um, for your perspective, I, like, what is it? Is it, uh, is it interesting? Is it surreal? Is it odd to see yourself uh, part of this documentary um, when NBC was such a prominent figure in the NBA? Well, 
I knew I was going to be in it to one extent or another because I was among the people they interviewed. Um, I sat down with them for a considerable period of time a, a few months ago, and it's always a little bit of a kick to see something from 30 years or 25 years ago. Um, some of it I didn't even specifically remember. Uh, many of the high points I remember in great detail, but then something would pop up, something I said, or some little nugget from a pregame show or whatever, and, oh, yeah, oh, now I remember that. So, so that's always a little bit of a kick. But I'm looking at it mostly as just, uh, A, a, a sports fan, but also, B, someone who appreciates television when it's done well. And this is done exceptionally well. Jason Hare was a young producer just in his mid-20s when I first met him, and he did pieces for my programs on HBO uh, in the early 2000s. And you could tell then that he was gifted and he was very dedicated. Uh, And now, close to 20 years later, uh, he's the main guy involved in putting this presentation together. And it's just magnificent storytelling. It has elements of journalism, and it will certainly become part of the historical record. But first and foremost, it's just great television, and it's captivating storytelling. It's a really rich topic. It's a rich and textured topic with a great leading man, but a whole bunch of supporting players who are interested too, interesting, too. And obviously, it comes at a time when people are starving for quality original programming, especially in sports. And here it is. Yeah, that's well said. Um, you, you're uh, so connected to uh, the Olympic presentation in the United States. You're clearly well aware of um, the situation uh, coming out of Tokyo and those officials talking about the Olympics. If you had to guess today, and I would, this is a pure speculation question to you, how realistic do you think we will see the Tokyo Olympics in 2021? Even Dr. Fauci has to speak in speculative tones. He has to put in all kinds of qualifiers. So certainly I don't come close to that level of expertise. I would fall back on what is now a cliche. We don't make the timetable. The virus makes the timetable. It would have been folly. It was folly for all sports to dive right back in. But of all the sports events you can think of, the one that would have been less, least well advised to start on schedule would have been the Olympics this summer. Now, let's bring more than 10,000 athletes from virtually every nation, along with their delegations and all the media and everybody else who shows up from the four corners of the globe with varying levels of health care in their home nations. Let's have them compete at close quarters, sweat on each other, breathe on each other, live together in the Olympic Village, and then let's send them back to their respective countries and see how that turns out. Talk about a Petri dish for causing the whole thing to not just increase, but explode. So we have to be assured 15 months from now or whatever it is, we have to be overwhelmingly certain that it's safe to have those kind of conditions that I just described. All those people coming together under those circumstances from the four corners of the globe. Do I hope it happens? I sure do. Can I say with certainty that it will? No one can. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. 
The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Before we let you go, I want to ask you about calling baseball, which I know has been uh, such a passion of yours for many, many years. And now current, you know, you're, this is sort of your avocation. Now you're currently doing this. Uh, one of the most, again, I hate to throw the word surreal around, but we're sort of living in these times. The, the, the no, I am fascinated by how broadcasters will approach the prospect of calling games with no crowd, given that the external of the sport the, the crowd cheering, the crowd booing, you know, whatever, whatever the, you know, basically audio sound. It's so important, I feel like, to the audience's uh, engagement of baseball. And that essentially is going to be eliminated. You may very well be calling a lot of games for MLB Network with literally no crowd. Have you begun to contemplate just the um, how, how you plan on going about that, how it would impact your broadcast? And I'll just be curious, just however you just sort of think of that notion. Well, not only will there be games, at least at the outset, and maybe all the way through whatever kind of season and postseason they cobble together, underlining if they are able to play, um, not only would there be no fans, uh, but it's possible that many of these broadcasts would be done off monitors in a studio, and the broadcasters would actually not be at the ballpark at all. I don't know what you can do to prepare for that. When it happens, we'll sit down and do it. I heard Joe Buck uh, with Brian Gumble on HBO last week say that he thinks it might be a good idea to actually pipe in crowd sound, which isn't just cheering in big moments or booing. It's that murmur of the crowd that's part of what a baseball game sounds like. But everything, everything's up for grabs if they're able to come back and play. And I think the audience, whether it's the NBA trying to get playoffs in or football and baseball trying to start their seasons, the audience will accept almost anything under these unique circumstances as long as they are assured that it makes practical sense that, that all of the public health issues have been taken into proper account and that these relatively privileged athletes, team owners, media members are not jumping the queue when it comes to testing and other aspects of medical care, when there are other people in society who need it more. Those hurdles have to be cleared before we can start to worry about our little issues of, gee, it's hard to call a game without a crowd. When it, when it happens and they ask me to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> As a philosophical question, because that is only what it can be right now, how would you feel if, one, if, if your employer, MLB Network, asked you, to go into, and I'm just using this because it's all contingency planning, go go into the bubble or go into the quarantine to call games within whatever that environment is. How would you just individually feel about that prospect as a broadcaster? Well, I would assume that if and when that happened, that highly credible, responsible, and ethical people with the number one thing on their agenda being the health of all those involved, would have vetted all aspects of that and checked every necessary box. If that happened, my inclination is that I would go ahead. It's going to be hard to broadcast wearing a mask, be kind of a muffled sound. But uh, if, if, we get, if we get to that point, then, then I imagine that I would do what I'm asked to do. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Bob, I've, I've interviewed Joe Buck many times, and one of the last interviews I had with him, he told me that turning 50 was odd for him because in many ways he still thought of himself as uh, younger than the players he's broadcasting. And he surmised that part part of that might have been starting very early in the business, part of that might have been being Jack Buck's kid and being around the, the sports for uh, such a long time, including as a young person. You were... You were essentially a sports prodigy in the business. Uh, you had a lot of at your time, youngest broadcaster to do this, youngest broadcaster to do that. You are now in a different um, spot in your career. And I wanted to just get your reflections on that adjustment going from, you know, probably the youngest person at like network levels to now being, um, you know, probably among the more senior or veteran uh, regular play-by-play callers for a national sport? Yeah. Well, I'm still the right guy to do baseball games on MLBN. Um, My own career decisions of my own accord, as we discussed earlier, indicated that I understood, even though I could still do it at a high level, I understood that I should step aside before anyone even hinted that they wanted me to step aside. Um, And that meant the Olympics and Sunday night football. I had ambivalent feelings about football overall for quite some time, but I was able to rationalize doing it because they gave me some places where at least I could get some of my misgivings and some of what I thought were the important points involved on the record. And I hope that that had some value. Um, It always struck me as odd when people said, yeah, yeah, he made a bunch of good points uh, about the NFL and he was the only one that was doing that. But if he really felt that strongly, then he should have just quit. Well, Those are the same people, by the way, or like the same people who a generation ago would say, hey, except for Howard Cosell, uh, nobody ever in network television ever criticizes anything about sports. They're all a bunch of housemen. So that indicates that they wanted somebody to take an independent view. Then somebody did take an independent view and their take was, well, if you really felt that way, why didn't you quit? Well, I could have said the same things on HBO or on CNN or whatever, and I did when I had my opportunities. But the fact that I said these things on network television in front of the largest possible audience gave them a greater impact and influence, which is why I felt comfortable doing it, at least for a while. But now circling back to answering your question, I I was well aware Uh, Even though I still had the energy and the ability to do it, I was well aware that when I started out, many of the players and all of the executives, all the coaches, all the managers, all the the people in, in, in television, they were all older than me. And then, and I was practically, the word irreverent was practically attached to my name, irreverent newcomer, Bob Costas, fresh, fresh approach. And then all of a sudden it snuck up on me. And then I was, the venerable Bob Costas, uh, you know, I, I accept it. It was, it was a better place for me to be at HBO, um, 
and some of the other things that I have done and will do again, that turned out to be a better place for me over the last decade or so uh, than NBC. But that's not solely Richard because of age. Al Michaels is a decade older than I am, roughly. Still the gold standard. Mike Emmerich is in his early 70s. Fantastic on these hockey games. What's the difference? They are attached to something that fits who they are, fits their interests and their abilities. It's the personification of who they are. Through no fault of their own, NBC no longer had the things that personified my interests and whatever my peculiar abilities may be. If you go back to the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, the combination of things that I did, both in and out of sports, um, and on HBO, and on NBC, taken together, that was a pretty good, uh, a pretty good indication of where I was coming from as both a broadcaster and a person. And then that became less so because the circumstances didn't align as they once did. And that's why I chose to reshape my career over the last, over the last several years and, and not, have to, not have to worry about, um, about the number, the age as a number. As long as you're doing what you want to do and you're still good at it, then that shouldn't matter. Bob Costas um, is here on behalf of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, but was gracious enough to answer some questions um, on uh, where he is now and uh, sort of his career a little bit writ large. Bob, uh, we've talked many times. I, I always enjoy these conversations, and uh, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks uh, so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, continued good health to you and yours. Richard, thank you. I hope it didn't wear you out. Be well. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Bob Costas uh, for giving uh, generously of his time. And uh, you know, he's here for a, uh, a really good, uh, you know, what I think is a, a really good and, and sort of important cause in terms of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and just head to um, the websites that he mentioned if you are interested in that kind of reporting training. It's pretty uh, important work that... Uh, Chris Nowinski and those guys are, and women are doing there. Um, for previous uh, podcast guests, if you are interested in sports media talk, prior to Bob Costas, we had um, uh, Adam and Craig Malamut, the uh, creators of the Bleacher Report animated series Game of Zones, as well as a sports media conversation with Chad Finn. Um, talked to John Oran about The Last Dance. Sean McDonough was a uh, guest on this podcast about uh, his uh, broadcasting career. Uh, prior to that, sports media in the age of the coronavirus. Prior to that, Chico Harlan, the Rome Bureau Chief of the Washington Post, former Washington Nationals writer. Prior to that, Scott Van Pelt of ESPN. And then prior to that, Dr. Celine Gounder at Grant Wall on the coronavirus and sports. Check out the archives if you are interested in this kind of content. I uh, want to thank uh, Sean Cherry and Patrick Antonetti. Not easy to produce a podcast when... Uh, uh, everybody's in three different cities, so thank you to them. My thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. Hope they're healthy and well. Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott, etc. This is Richard Deitch, and I will see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs>